a reading from Exodus, beginning with the third, 32nd chapter, the first verse. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So Aaron said to them, Take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, <clears throat> your sons and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, tomorrow let shall be a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. And the Lord said to Moses, go down, for your people whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshiped it and sacrificed to it and said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now therefore let me alone, that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them, in order that I may make a great nation of you. But Moses implored the Lord his God, and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people, whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say, with evil intent did he bring them out, to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven, and all this land that I have promised I will give to your offspring, and they shall inherit it forever. And the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. Then Moses turned and went down from the mountain with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand, tablets that were written on both sides. On the front and on the back they were written. The tablets were the work of God, and the writing was the writing of God engraved on the tablets. When Joshua heard the noise of the people as they shouted, he said to Moses, there is a noise of war in the camp. But he said, it is not the sound of shouting for victory or the sound of the cry of defeat, but the sound of singing that I hear. And as soon as he came near the camp and saw the calf and the dancing, Moses' anger burned hot, and he threw the tablets out of his hands and broke them at the foot of the mountain. He took the calf that they had made and burned it with fire and ground it to powder and scattered it on the water and made the people of Israel drink it. And Moses said to Aaron, what did this people do to you that you have brought such a great sin upon them? 
And Aaron said, let not the anger of my Lord burn hot. You know the people that they are set on evil. For they said to me, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So I said to them, let anyone, have, let anyone who have gold take it off. So they gave it to me, and I threw it into the fire, and out came this calf. And when Moses saw that the people had broken loose, for Aaron had let them break loose to the derision of their enemies, then Moses stood in the gate of the camp and said, Who is on the Lord's side? Come to me. And all the sons of Levi gathered around him. And he said to them, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Put your sword on your side, each of you, and go to and fro from gate to gate throughout the camp, and each of you his brother and his companion and his neighbor. And the sons of Levi did according to the word of Moses. And that day about 3,000 men of the people fell. And Moses said, Today you have been ordained for the service of the Lord, each one at the cost of his son and of his brother, so that he might bestow a blessing upon you this day. The next day, Moses said to the people, You have sinned a great sin, and now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. So Moses returned to the Lord and said, Alas, this people has sinned a great sin. They have made for themselves gods of gold. But now, if you will forgive their sins, but if not, please blot me out of your, out of your book that you have written. But the Lord said to Moses, Whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. But now go, lead the people to the place about which I have spoken to you. Behold, my angel shall go before you. Nevertheless, in the day when I visit, I will visit their sin upon them. Then the Lord sent a plague on the people, because they made the calf, the one that Aaron made. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to St. Matthew. Glory to you, Lord Christ. And again, Jesus spoke to them in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son and sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast, but they would not come. Again, he sent other servants, saying, Tell those who are invited, See, I have prepared my dinner, my oxen and my fat calves have been slaughtered, and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention and went off, one to his farm, another to his business, while the rest seized his servants, treated them shamefully, and killed them. The king was angry. And he sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Then he said to his servants, The wedding feast is ready, but those invited were not worthy. Go therefore to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. And those servants went out into the roads and gathered all whom they found, both bad and good. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to look at the guests, he saw there a man who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. 
Then the king said to the attendants, Bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. I speak to you in the name of God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. This morning, I want to look primarily at our extended passage from Exodus 32 about the incident, the incident of the golden calf. But before we get there, a few words about our gospel passage. This morning, our passage from Matthew picks up again in that same encounter we've seen Jesus in the past two weeks when he's responding to the religious leaders confronting him on the day after his triumphal entry into Jerusalem, in just a few days before they'll succeed in getting Rome to crucify him. Well, today we heard the third of three parables that Jesus tells to them in response. You may recall two weeks ago, it was the parable of the two sons that he started with. Last week was the parable of the vineyard tenants and today we see Jesus conclude his response to them with the parable of the wedding feast. Jesus says in verse 2, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son and sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast, but they would not come. So what's happening there is the king would have already sent out an initial invitation, and now his servants are notifying everyone who'd accepted the, that invitation that it is now time for the wedding, which were week-long events in those days. So verse 4 says, Again, he sent other servants, saying, Tell those who were invited, See, I've prepared my dinner. I've prepared everything. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention and went off, says the parable. One to his farm, another to his business while the rest seized his servants, treated them shamefully, and killed them. Now anyone who was here or tuned in last week for the parable of the tenants will notice that this parable repeats some of those same themes. First, it highlights how many who have been invited to follow Jesus and perhaps have even initially accepted so today that would be folks who identify as Christians or are even churchgoers how many can still end up, despite accepting that initial invitation, failing to truly enter into the kingdom life he intends for us, living submitted to his reign. And last week we talked about how the failure to practice self-examination tends to be the main reason that people miss out on this. Though today's parable also hints at busyness, which we mentioned, or preoccupation with worldly concerns also being a blockade. But a second parallel to last week are those individuals who respond to the second invitation by slaughtering the king's servants. Now, I'm sure there are some of us who don't really enjoy going to weddings all that much, but killing the guy who brings you the invitation seems a bit drastic, I think we can agree. Though jokes aside, this of course represents the extreme reaction 
of the very religious leaders Jesus is talking to, to both his forerunner, John the Baptist, and now to him, Jesus, as they're just a few days away from having him killed. However, just like with the parables the last few weeks, this allusion in this parable to Jesus' crucifixion can once again make it tempting for us to judge these religious leaders whom he's talking to. And to conclude, this parable is directed at them, right? The ones who are literally going to have him put to death and doesn't apply so much to us. And yet once again, I would caution against that. Instead, I would suggest that the resistance these religious leaders have to Jesus' invitation into the life of the kingdom, it speaks to a difficulty that all of us have because of our sin. And that difficulty is the difficulty of living by faith. The difficulty we have in trusting God more than we trust ourselves. Our difficulty with waiting, with delaying gratification, with trusting in a God whom we can't see more than in the things of this world that we can see. All of these are elements of faith that the life of the kingdom requires. And yet they are so difficult for us because of our sinfulness. And one way I'd like to challenge us to think about this today is by considering a question. And that question is, what came first? Faith or sin? What came first? It's sort of like the question, what came first, the chicken or the egg, you know? But I think the way that many have oversimplified Christianity can give the impression often that sin came first and faith came after that. That humans sinned and that faith in Christ was then offered merely as the remedy or cure for that sin. As if, as if, if there had never been any sin, we wouldn't still need to live by faith. We wouldn't need this faith. However, to the contrary, what we see from the beginning of Scripture is God seeking a people who will live by faith in relationship with him. For example, in the story of Adam and Eve, the Lord asked them first to live by faith before the fall, right? He asked them to trust and obey his command about the tree, right? And their fall into sin is when they fail to do that, when they fail to trust God, right? And to believe that his command is going to be what's best for them. Tend to believe that he'll provide for them. They think he's holding out on them. Then we have Abraham, right? He's remembered as the father of faith for the way that he leaves his home country in response to God's call. And then later is willing to even sacrifice the son upon whose life God has placed such promises. And if you recall, it says the Lord counts him as righteous because of his willingness to live by faith. So from the beginning, the Lord has been seeking out a people who despite the tensions and difficulties of life in this world 
We'll trust in him. We'll believe, we'll have faith in this God who though mysterious and unseen is also loving and powerful and the source of everything good. Therefore, what I wanna suggest to you today is that faith isn't so much a remedy for sin as sin is our human resistance or incapacity to live by faith, our deficiency of faith. And it's with this in mind that I wanna turn to our passage from Exodus today about the golden calf. Because the rub in this famous or really infamous uh, passage, which is almost a sequel to the fall, really. The rub in this passage is the Israelites struggle to live by faith. God, of course, had chosen the Israelites beginning with Abraham many hundreds of years before. And over the summer, just so we get kind of get the context right, over the summer, we meandered through many of the stories in Genesis of those first few generations, right? From Abraham to Isaac to Jacob, and we spent a lot of time on, and then Joseph. But after the whole family ended up in Egypt with Joseph, 400 years passed and they grew to be a large nation, not just a family. But they were also eventually enslaved by Egypt. And so the book of Exodus is telling the story about God raising up Moses to rescue them from slavery and lead them through the Red Sea and on a 40-year journey to the promised land, modern-day Israel. And since Moses had rescued them, and since they'd been wandering in the desert, in that time, the Lord had been miraculously providing them with food and drink. He'd also given them boundaries to live within in the Ten Commandments and other laws so that they might be able to live in much greater freedom, have understanding how to live. And most recently in Exodus, the Lord had been giving instructions for building a tabernacle where he would dwell so that his people would be able to enjoy his presence among them. But while God is giving Moses these instructions for the tabernacle, the people of Israel have this golden calf fiasco. So when the passage opens today, Moses has been sent up on Mount Sinai getting instructions on the tabernacle from God as well as a nice engraved copy of the Ten Commandments to bring down, put on the wall. But he'd been up there almost 40 days. So verse 1 says, when the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, it's taken too long up there. It says, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron, who's Moses' brother, and said to him, up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, like they don't even know the guy, as for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what's become of him. Right? So Aaron does what they ask. He has them take, take off their earrings of gold and fashions them into a golden calf that despite our imaginations actually uh, is believed to have been quite small, right? Probably only four to six inches long is this golden calf. I bet that's not what you imagined. And the next day, Aaron and the people hold a feast and make offerings before this idol. 
Now, I want to take a moment to explain that there's actually some debate about what commandment the Israelites are really violating here. Traditionally, many have understood the Israelites as replacing God with this idol, this calf, and thus violating the first of the Ten Commandments, to have no other gods before him, instead of him. But if this is the case, it makes it odd that Aaron seems to suggest in verse 4 that this calf was the one who had rescued them from Egypt. And he still proclaims in verse 5 that the next day they'll use this calf in a feast to the Lord. And the word Lord there in Hebrew is Yahweh, the name of their God. So in that way, it doesn't seem like they've necessarily moved on from their God. Well, more recently, an increasing number of scholars have interpreted the golden calf as being not a replacement for God, but a replacement for Moses. That's right. This would mean that the Israelites grew tired of waiting on Moses, who had been serving as a mediator for them between them and God, and instead decided to fashion an image to represent the Lord instead of Moses, right? If this was the case, it would be not a violation of the first commandment, but of the second, which prohibited making a graven image of anything in the heavens. And so worship, you know, prohibited worshiping the Lord in an improper way. This might also be more consistent with ancient practices where there's some evidence that people would worship idols or statues as being an actual God, but more evidence that those statues would physically represent an unseen God that they worshiped who remained distant, right? Now, in some sense, this is really beside the point or beside my point today, other than being somewhat maybe interesting. Whatever the Israelites were doing here, whether they were violating the first commandment or the second, whether they were using the calf as a replacement for God or for Moses, either way, what they're demonstrating here is their frustration with living by faith without tangible, a tangible, visible God or at least his representative, right? They refuse here to keep living by faith and prefer this idol whom they can control and see, right? Well, up on the mountain, the Lord reveals to Moses what they're up to. He says in verse seven, go down for your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They've turned aside quickly out of the way I commanded them. They've made for themselves a golden calf and have worshiped it and sacrificed to it and said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people and behold, it's a stiff-necked people. Now, therefore... Let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them and I may consume them in order that I may make a great nation of you, Moses. Did you catch that at the end? God's suggestion here to Moses is that he, God, might abandon the Israelites, the children of Abraham, and start over with just the lineage of Moses. That's what he's saying in 9 and 10. And if God is looking for a people who will live by faith, but the Israelites here are proving to be unwilling or incapable or both, God would be justified to give up on them, right? 
and to try this with someone else. The problem is, we know that if that's what God wants to do, he's gonna be looking for a long time. He's gonna, cause he's gonna keep ending up in the same predicament no matter what people he chooses. Because Israel has always represented what any group of humans would do in their position, right? Humanity's sinful condition leaves all of us challenged and incapable of consistently living by faith, at least apart from God's help. So God, if he had decided to give up on the Israelites and start over, he might have been looking for a long time, right? Or he might have had to start over a bunch of times. Well, it's hard to say if God's seriously considering giving up on the Israelites here, or if he's just trying to induce Moses to respond as Moses does in verse 11. There, Moses implores the Lord to reconsider. He says, O oh Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people, whom you've brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say with evil intent did he bring them out to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people, Lord. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and all this land that I promised I will give your offspring and they shall inherit it forever. So Moses implores, intercedes, that, asking the Lord that he not go with this plan of a do-over. And the Lord agrees. The paragraph concludes, the Lord relented from the disaster he'd spoken of bringing on his people. So Moses has spared the Israelites from being completely destroyed by God. But when Moses gets down the mountain, and when he actually sees the Israelites dancing around this little trophy like they're at a burning man or something, Moses is the one who's ticked off. And he responds in some startling ways. First, he breaks the freshly engraved Ten Commandment tablets, which makes sense as a sign that they had broken this covenant with God they just recently agreed to. Then, though, he burns the calf up and makes them eat it. And then he ordains the Levites as priests, but for the unsettling purpose of slaughtering 3,000 greatest offenders. How's that for your first priestly duty? All I had to do was celebrate Holy Communion, you know. Thanks be to God. But the next day, Moses said to the rest of the Israelites in verse 30, you sinned a great sin and now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. But look at how Moses proposes to make atonement. On the mountaintop, he says to God, alas, this people has sinned a great sin. They've made for themselves gods of gold, verse 32. But now, if you will forgive their sin, but if not, please blot me out of your book that you've written. How is Moses proposing to make atonement for their sin? He is offering to take their place. Now, even though in this instance, God doesn't seem to agree to this idea, what we see in Moses, which 
you probably already seen. What we see in his intercession on behalf of the people earlier in the passage. And now his willingness to stand in their place and take the punishment they deserve on himself. We see Moses prefiguring the salvation brought through Jesus Christ. If Israel represents the incapacity all of us have to consistently live by faith, so their need for atonement, Israel's need for atonement and intercession for their faithlessness represents our need for the same, a need which Jesus would end up meeting. While God rejects Moses' offer to atone for the sins of Israel here, Jesus did what even Moses couldn't do, right? He lived a life of perfect faith, trusting God the Father all the way to the grave and being vindicated for it, right, in his resurrection. And in doing so, Jesus opened up a way for any of us who are in Christ, who are throw our lot into him and submit to his lordship, who trust in his faithfulness. He opened up the kingdom way of living under his grace and power. And yet, as we know, or at least as we've been talking about lately, even if we are in Christ, this life of the kingdom, keeping our eyes fixed on him, submitting our whole lives to him, is by no means automatic. Why? Because we are not done struggling to live out, to live by faith. So we are in need of Jesus' continued intercession for us to remain on this narrow way he's opened. Because very much like those Israelites, we remain so often averse to living by faith. I mean, if I can be just vulnerable with you for a minute, I don't really like living by faith very much at all. I mean, do you? I mean, do I love those, those mountaintop moments with God? The blessings and victories he gives me? Sure. But the in-between times, the waiting, the trials, seeking to obey this command to love my enemies, learning to grieve, never arriving at a place of complete holiness, right? Not even close. I, I hate that the spiritual life is a journey. I mean, I wish that that whole evangelical distortion of the gospel, right? The prosperity gospel, I wish it were true. I really do. Like we pray a little prayer for forgiveness of our sins and then everything's just happily ever after, right? I mean, I get why you can fill the pews with that false gospel, right? Who doesn't want that? Or the word of faith heresy that implies that, that, that the more miraculous thing we ask God to do, the more miraculous it is, the more faith we have, right? the more miraculous thing we can convince ourselves that God is doing or that we've claimed and God has done. 
I don't mean to be condescending, but I mean, that's not faith. That, act, that isn't faith at all, really. Delusion? I don't know. I'm not saying don't pray for stuff. All right, I'm gonna get back to script here. That's not what biblical faith is all about. Biblical faith is about putting one foot in front of the other and following behind Jesus. It's choosing to do the next right thing even when we don't feel like it. And it's returning to Jesus in repentance when we fail to do that next right thing. And believing that we're still accepted. It's about seeking his help to learn to accept the trials and griefs of life rather than trying to just escape them like the rest of the world does. Real faith is about learning to stay in reality with the help of God's spirit. And I'm just confessing today that sometimes I just get tired of it. I get tired of living by faith and waiting on God. Because what do we do though when we get tired of it? Like the Israelites, we take matters into our own hands, right? We seek to manufacture happiness for ourselves, whether through sinful behaviors or seeking out religious experiences for ourselves. That's what they were really doing. They were manufacturing a religious experience, right? I bet they got goosebumps, right? When we don't trust God to bless us and take care of us, we set about to secure blessing for ourselves, right? When we don't have faith, that's what we're doing. We take matters into our own hands or try to. You know, recently there was a survey done by Lifeway Research that asked evangelical Christians in America the question, who do you hope that your presidential vote will benefit the most? Who do you hope your presidential vote will benefit the most? This is a really helpful question because they're not asking who'd you vote for, right? They're getting around all that polarization. They're just saying, what are your motives, right? Whomever you're voting for, what are your motives? Well, to say that the results were disappointing would be an understatement. 41% of these Christians said they hope that their presidential vote most benefits people in the nation who are like, they, like them. They want their tribe to benefit. Another 20% answered that they hope their presidential vote most benefits them and their family, right? So forget the tribe, my household, right? Me, right? Only 15% of these Christians said they hoped their presidential vote most benefited, most benefited people our country has failed. Only 15%. And only another 9% said that they hoped their presidential vote most benefited people in the nation who are different from them. That's two-thirds of Christians responding to this survey who frankly, don't have faith. At least not that the Lord will take care of them. Right? They don't have faith that the Lord will take care of them, so they're gonna do what they can to secure blessing themselves. It's like the Jacob story all over again. Right? They can't receive that promise that I'll never leave you for, nor forsake you, that I've really got you from God. 
So they take it into their own hands and can't think about anybody but themselves. That's a failure of discipleship. And that's what the religious leaders in our gospel passage are consumed with too, right? They're part of a tribe where there's a belief in God, but as individuals, they don't actually believe in him. They don't actually trust him, trust his plan. In their sin, they don't wanna live by faith. So like all of us are prone to do, they place their bet instead on the things of this world, on the wealth they can acquire or already have, on, on the power they can acquire or already have, or on pleasure, right? They're us. And yet Jesus is trying every which way. I mean, he's, he's doing cartwheels and everything he can to convince them that those worldly paths are false. They can never fulfill. That that's the way of the world, the wide way that leads to destruction. That the kingdom of God can't come to those who merely believe there is a God up there or practice religion, but are only willing to take, it can only come to those who are, who are willing to take the leap toward learning to trust him in all circumstances. And yes, that's a journey that's never complete, but are we even on that path? So thanks be to God that Jesus has not only atoned for our sin, but that he also intercedes for us while we're on this journey. As Moses prefigured also, right? Paul told us in our final verse from Romans today that Christ Jesus is right now He's at the right hand of God, interceding on our behalf, right? And we need it. And in the paragraph before that, Paul also writes that we've been given the Holy Spirit who helps in our weaknesses. And when we don't know what to pray, the Holy Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for, for words. He prays according to the will of God when we can't, when we don't. And that's good news. And so in closing today, I want to invite us to consider where or how we are struggling to live by faith right now. And we don't need to be afraid to ask this question, to do this, this sort of self-examination like we talked about last week. Jesus has made us safe from condemnation, right? Where are we balking right now? Where have we chosen the wide path of unbelief instead of the narrow path of trusting and following the Lamb? And whatever the answer, will we repent and ask God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit for help to trust Him? To trust Him where our hope has shifted onto a golden calf of this world. Because it is only God who can and has and will deliver us. Amen.